Uh, I'd invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes. It's about two-thirds of the way through the Old Testament. If you have a device, you can go ahead and you can swipe there. If you don't have either of those, you'll be able to follow along on the screen behind me when we get to the text. Before we get into the text, though, that were the verses that we're looking at this morning, I want to give a little bit of an introduction, cover a little bit what we talked about last week um, for those of you who weren't with us last week. So the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, we don't know exactly who the author is. It's never explicitly stated for hundreds, thousands of years it was thought to be King Solomon. Uh, And personally, I do think that it was King Solomon that wrote the book. Uh, Solomon is the son of King David, who is known as the greatest king uh, in the history of Israel. Um, But in the last couple hundred years, there's been some skepticism regarding who actually wrote the book. Now, last week, as we uh, looked at the first chapter of Ecclesiastes, there is a couple of themes that we raised that are going to continue to pop up throughout the the book. And so the first of these themes was the word vanity. Vanity in the sense that the author, the preacher, who's preaching this sermon is using it is in the sense of vapor. It's like smoke, almost as though you try to catch it in your hand and it just disappears. You, You never get a hold of it. And this idea of vanity is closely tied with another phrase that we looked at, which is under the sun. So the preacher, in his message that he's preaching or writing to us, is communicating the idea that everything under the sun, when when we hear under the sun, we should think everything in life, absolutely everything in life, is vanity, is futile. It does not hold meaning in the way that it will ultimately satisfy us. And the the preacher illustrates this by looking at some natural realities. He looks at the sun and he says, the sun rises and then at night it sets and it comes back around the next day and does the same thing over and over and over. He looks at wind and he says, wind blows around its courses and then it comes back and it blows again. Streams flow to the sea, but the sea is never full. And he says, look at the repetition that happens around us all the time, over and over. It's communicating to us this idea that it's never enough. It has to keep happening. It can't ultimately satisfy us or save us. And so we have to look elsewhere for that satisfaction. And this is where we get to Jesus. Jesus came not from under the sun, but from over the sun. And he entered into our under the sun existence to bring to us what we could never create, what we could never find in and of ourselves, what this world will never give to us. And that is the love and the joy and the hope, the freedom, salvation, which is only found in and through Jesus. So I want to give just one little aside here this morning. When we think about the the storyline of the Bible, I think it's helpful to understand the context within which Solomon is writing, or the time frame within which he's writing. So he is operating at a time under the law. So when I say the law, I mean basically the Ten Commandments. Okay, don't kill people. Don't worship other gods. So he is living at a time where that is the rule. That's the law over him and over God's people. I was talking with someone this week as we were looking at a couple of verses. We were talking about the Ten Commandments and the law, and some of the 
uh, interesting comments that the New Testament says about the Old Testament law or the, the Ten Commandments. It says in the New Testament that the law kills, that the law enslaves, that the law brings wrath. And so as we're reading through this and we hear Solomon, the preacher, talking about all this vanity, everything is vanity. It's just you want to go give, guy, give the guy a hug, right? Like, let's just love this guy a little bit. But as we hear him talking in this way, we need to understand that he is writing in a time when he is under the law. And part of the point of the law is for people to understand they cannot save themselves because nobody could keep the law. And so there is this sense, when we look at the preacher, we listen to him, we should feel this reality that he's living in this time when there is no hope. There is no Jesus at that time. He's leading us towards Jesus. So this is the bad news before the good news. Solomon is taking us on this journey that one author I read this week, or not this week, but in preparation for this series, he says, this is Solomon's intellectual descent into hell, which I think is a really good description. This, this is him just slowly turning, walking, heading into hell, and all the vanity and worthlessness that he is communicating to us. But this should pull us to something more, something greater, and that is Jesus. Jesus is the remedy, and we talked last week. We don't want to move on too quickly from the vanity. We want to sit in that. We want to wade in that for a bit and not just jump to Jesus because in the vanity we find the world that we still live in today. But as we read Ecclesiastes, we should read this as anticipatory of Jesus and how he ultimately fulfills what Ecclesiastes is saying. So let's jump into chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. We're going to look at the first 11 verses this morning. The preacher says, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, It is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. 
So what we find here in verse 1 is Solomon is laying out his endeavor and his conclusion to that endeavor. Verse 1, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. So he's basically saying, is there a pleasure in the world that can ultimately satisfy? Can I experience enough things? that I will ultimately be satisfied, that I don't need to look elsewhere. I can keep going to this thing, and it will give me what I'm looking for. And so the preacher is going to take us on this journey that he's endeavoring on. But spoiler alert, he says also in verse 1, this also was vanity. Now, some of us might look at the preacher and think, well, you lived thousands of years ago. You probably don't have a great grasp of pleasure. I mean, we're pretty progressive now. We've advanced quite a bit. So I don't know, Solomon, if you really know how you might be able to find true pleasure. We might have a few things that we can teach you about this. So I want to go back to one qualifier that we had last week. We were introduced to Solomon's wisdom last week. So when he was young, God said he could ask for anything. He could ask for riches. He could ask for anything he wanted. And the thing that he asked for was wisdom. In 1 Kings 4.34, it says there that Solomon was wiser than all other men. So if we understand that this individual is far beyond you and I in terms of the wisdom that he possesses, that his pursuit of pleasure and his capacity to chase after that pleasure is far beyond us. And we're, we're going to explore some of the ways in which he pursued this. So, um, but in all of his pursuit after pleasure, he, he never lost his wisdom. He kept his wisdom with him. It said in, says this in verse 3. It also says it in verses 9 and 10. It says there, my wisdom remained with me. And he said, I kept my heart from no pleasure. So Solomon is conducting this big test, and we get to watch what happens in this pursuit after pleasure. Now, one thing that I love here is the validity of God's word. Ecclesiastes was written thousands of years ago, and it was written to make us wise. It was written to instruct us. So when we read this and we hear this man going on this journey, he's going to try and find pleasure. We shouldn't read this and think, oh, an experiment. I think I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to go on this same experiment and see if I can one-up Solomon. There's no room for that here. This is written so that we don't do that, okay? So that we don't endeavor on this same journey of trying to satisfy ourselves with pleasures under the sun. So this has been written for our good for our salvation, so that we might avoid pain. Okay, so let's look at the ways in which Solomon pursued pleasure. First of all, he talks about laughter. Laughter is a great gift, right? Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it says, there's a time to weep and there is a time to laugh. There is a time to laugh. Proverbs 17.22 says, a joyful heart is good medicine. It is a good thing to laugh, to sit around a fire and to share hilarious stories with one another, to laugh 
at ourselves. We could even go to the medical world and they would say that there are medical benefits for us engaging in this act of laughter. We need to laugh. Now, when we think about Solomon, Solomon had every possibility at his disposal wiser than us. There's no greater king that has come before him in Jerusalem. He exceeds others. So he has the the ability to go and get whatever laughter he wants to get. So if you think about in our context today, he, he would go and get Dave Chappelle. He would go and get Colbert. He would go and get Ansari or Gaffigan. He would go and get anybody that he wanted, and he would bring them in to his parties, and he would say, make me laugh. And what does he say about laughter? It's mad. It's mad. Maybe you've had those times in life when you are with friends and you're just hanging out and there's some some great stories that are being told, right? And you, you are laughing. Laughing to the point where you can't stop laughing. Laughing to the point where your cheeks are hurting and, and you're at the point where you're like squishing your cheeks, right? Trying to bring them back into their normal spot so they'll stop hurting. Even laughter, too much laughter can be not good, can be painful. Solomon says that the pursuit of pleasure through laughter drove him mad. So laughter didn't do it. So Solomon moves on to the next thing we see here is wine. He moves on to wine. So we don't know exactly what this looked like. Maybe he sampled fine wines, and that was kind of the extent of it. it. Maybe he uh, engaged in drunkenness. Uh, But whatever, whatever he was engaging in, one thing that we know is that he never lost his wisdom, okay? So we need to remember the specs. He, He never lost his wisdom. So it was always part of his experiment. Now, maybe we sit here in the 21st century and we think about all the microbreweries that we have. We think about all the options that we have here in our day and we might think, Solomon, I don't know if you really had the capacity to really find pleasure uh, through this means. 1 Kings 4 helps us. So 1 Kings is a, it's a historical book. So if you go to First and Second Kings, the Samuels, what we find there is a lot of historical data that kind of builds out these stories that, that we get in Ecclesiastes. So in First Kings 4, in verse 20, it says there, it's about Solomon and his palace. It says that they ate and drank and were happy. So we're going to broaden this out to not just drinking, but eating as well. Things that he was consuming uh, with those in his palace. Then it goes on to verses 22 and 23, and it says there, Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. So some of that might not make a lot of sense. I mean, we can, we can understand when it says 20 pasture-fed cattle, right? 10 fat oxen, we get that. Maybe the, the, fine, the, the uh, 
30 cores of fine flour, maybe that's not as, it, it doesn't communicate to us in the same way. But if we go back and we look into some of the historical data, we do the math on some of this, uh, commentators estimate that this amount of food would feed approximately either uh, between 14 to 70,000 people. So it's a, it's a large gap there, but in my research, most of them settled kind of in the around 20,000 people, 15 to 20,000 people. So we're not talking like just a backyard get-together <laughs> here, right? Like this is a party, and this is a ton of food. So you can imagine that the drink, the drink that's attached with this as well. Like, he knew how to have a party. So our, our little BYOB in our backyard is pathetic, right, compared to what Solomon is doing day in and day out. So we think about some of the best drinks that maybe we have. He had his Hennessy. He had his Grey Goose. We think about Surly, right? Like, he, he wouldn't just go to the liquor store and get some Surly. He would just go buy the whole enterprise and say, come to my pad and he would just have a party at the surly brewery in his partying as with all of this endeavor solomon kept no pleasure from himself no pleasure he would chase after it as much as he could and the result he says is vanity or madness okay so our he says, I'm sick of the hangovers, right? Like, I'm sick of sleeping in until 1 o'clock in the afternoon and getting up. I feel like a loser with this. It's just, it's not happening for me. So I'm going to move on to something else now. That's just not, it's not doing it for me. So the next, things that he goes, or the next thing that he goes to is great works. He's like, I'm going to do some great works. Maybe this will fill me up in the way that I am looking to be filled up. So he's moving on from the frat house to now holding a steady job, okay? Maybe if he accomplishes much in his job, that will do the trick for him. And so he endeavors to do great works, and great works he does. He builds himself a palace, which takes him 14 years, okay? So this is a serious palace that he's building. He plants vineyards and trees and gardens. In fact, it says that he planted so much that he needed to build a water supply for his forest. The dude planted a forest, right? Like, we might plant seven or eight trees on our property, right? But on the back few hundred acres that he's got, he's planting an actual forest, a little beyond what we can do in our own capacity, right? So if we look at his life, we look at the great works that he's, he's done, and we can go to, the, go to First Kings, we can go read some more of the histor historical data that he, to prove what he has done, the works that he did, the things that he built. We could say that this king was an accomplished man. He did a lot, accomplished many great works. There's many people we can look around at or look at in our culture and say, ah, they've, they've accomplished great works as well. So I want to go to one cultural icon. Um, some of you maybe will love him. I, I don't know. Ah, yeah, at least one of us will love him. Some of us will hate him as well. But uh, this individual is Tom Brady. He's the quarterback for the New England Patriots. 
And so he's considered by many to be the best football player of all time. He's won as many Super Bowls as anybody else. So he's won five Super Bowls, most successful NFL players. He's got thriving businesses off the field. This man is in his 40s, and he's playing at the level and in a game that's made for guys in their 20s. He's just dominating. He's got a wife who's considered a supermodel, maybe like the richest supermodel in the world. The NFL every year comes out with this list of the top 100 players. He was just named the number one player in the NFL. If we would look at Tom Brady, we could say, in some sense, he's Solomon-esque. He's got a lot. He's had a ton of success. He's accomplished many great works. So he did this 60 Minutes interview a number of years ago. And he was asked at that time, what do you do when you have everything you thought you ever wanted and it still isn't enough? So this is following his third of five Super Bowl championships. And this was his answer. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me? I think, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. And the interviewer asks him, what's the answer? And Brady says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. We would look at Tom Brady. Though we may hate him, we may look at him and say, man, I'd love to have some of his success, some of his money, some of his accomplishments. I'd love to live his life. And yet, a man who has more than any of us here materially, who has accomplished probably more than any of us have, here he still sits and he says to us, there's got to be more. It's not enough. And so, the same journey that Solomon was on thousands of years ago is the same journey we find ourselves on today. So accomplishment didn't suffice for him either. He thought maybe possessions, wealth. So he accumulated massive amounts of slaves and animals, wealth and singers. There, there were kings and queens who would come and look at his storehouses of wealth. They would admire all that he had. It says that he would get singers. So our, our little attempts to get singers through Spotify Premium so we don't have to listen to advertisements, right? Like, he would just go by the band. He doesn't mess around with these, these other things. He would just go and he would bring in the band. There's nothing that he had to do for himself. Nothing. He, would, he could have someone bathe him. He could have someone dress him. He could have someone chew his food if he wanted someone to chew his food. He could get massages all day long. He could have anything that he wanted. And what we find him saying, a life of luxury, a life of ease, a life full of possessions, a life of wealth, eh, all of that also lacked as well. So we've got one more thing he goes to sex. He collected women. If we go back to 1 Kings chapter 11, it talks about his exploits with women. He had 700 wives. 
He had princesses. He had 300 concubines. Think mistresses. Every fantasy that Solomon had could be fulfilled. Every hair color, every body type, you name it, he could have it. And not just on a computer screen. He could actually experience it. In our culture, our sex-crazed culture, one might look at Solomon and expect his conclusion to be one of heart-racing excitement. But actually, his experiment concludes in verse 11, specifically about sex as well. All was vanity and a striving after wind. There was no woman and there is no women, plural, that could fill this God-shaped desire within him. There is nothing under the sun that can give us what we are looking for. It doesn't matter if it's work, any of these things that we've listed already, or if it's work, or it's entertainment, it's our hobbies, our relationships. There is nothing to be gained under the sun. There is nothing to be gained under the sun. It's a bleak reality, right? Like, this is what I come to church for, right? You're supposed to pump me up, pastor. We need to sit in this, realize this happens in our own lives. We chase in the same way. Those that we rub shoulders with are chasing after the same things as Solomon day after day, trying to find the same things that Solomon was trying to find. And we come up empty. It's vanity. Now, if you think about this, you think about, um, we, we have non-Christians who are part of our uh, gathering here. We have Christians who are part of our gathering. So uh, if you're a Christian, if this is the way that you would go to non-Christians, okay, this probably is not going to be the most attractive thing. All is vanity, right? Like if, if that's just our message, there has to be more to it. So one thing that can happen that, that can get confused here is the idea to say that only Christians experience pleasure. Because that's what Solomon's after, right? And so I, I don't want to communicate to us this morning that, it's, that, that pleasure is only reserved for Christians because that's an asinine statement, okay? But I do want to say, if you are a Christian, please don't pursue non-Christians with this mentality. The idea that if you come to Jesus, you will find pleasure. Not that that's wrong, but that's not the only way. So let me say, explain this a little bit. So the Bible says that God makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust, okay? The rain falls on everybody. So there's this theological idea known as common grace, which touches everybody 
everywhere. So we can look out around us, whether we're Christian or we're non-Christian, we can see that there's generosity shown by Christians and non-Christians. We can see that people live for noble causes, whether they're Christian or they're non-Christian. We can see that people enjoy pleasure, whether they're Christian or non-Christian. But where I want to go with this, uh, our boy C.S. Lewis, who's a theologian, writer, uh, he's really helpful here. So he has a quote that I want to read. He says, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, so he's looking at the, the first four books of the, the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and he's saying, in there we encounter Jesus, and in and through Jesus we find this great reward. He says, unblushing promises of reward and a staggering nature of rewards through Jesus, it would seem that our Lord, or Jesus, finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. What he's saying here is summed up in this last sentence. We are far too easily pleased. We settle for a pleasure that is far too small. Lewis is saying that we settle for a pleasure that is pitiful compared to what God has for us. God wants us to experience his goodness in the gifts that he gives, for sure. But that is only a foretaste. Because here's the reality. The good gifts that God gives are bad gods. They will never give us the pleasure that we're ultimately looking for. And this is what the preacher is realizing. This is what Solomon's experiment is leading to, leading him to in his conclusion. Pleasure may provide us a fleeting high, but outside of Jesus, we're missing out on a fullness of freedom, a fullness of joy that goes far beyond whatever it is, whatever that pleasure is we're experiencing in whatever activity or thing we're engaged in. See, pleasure that's merely for the sake of pleasure, and when I say that, I'm saying pleasure that's merely for the sake of self-indulgence, is actually displeasure. Because where it's going to lead us is to boredom. We're going to do this thing over and over and over. It's the same thing we're going to get bored with it. Or we're going to run out of whatever it is that's allowing us to have that thing. This is probably what happened with Solomon. His parties had to get bigger, grander, more exquisite, push the envelope farther, but he realized, I've heard that joke before. I've slept with that woman before. I've tasted that taste before. And it's the same thing. And it's not giving me what I'm looking for. It's not filling him up. It didn't quench this thirst deep within him. So life is vanity. Everything under the sun amounts to nothing. What do we do with this reality? 
Well, I think, despite all that we've explored, that there are tons of reasons for hope in the midst of this. So I want to move to our gospel application here. Uh, three points of gospel application and hopefully infuse some hope for us. So if, if we look at these first 11 verses in chapter 2, there's this tone that we get, uh, the language that Solomon is using. He says, I said, I will, I searched, I built, I bought, I gathered, I became great, I made great works. If you read through that, there's this very clear direction. It's very self-focused. Look at me. Look at what I'm doing. And so, in his conclusion, he's saying, I can do many great things. I have done many things. It's not enough. It's not enough. What lies behind this language, this way of living, is a belief that we are God. That we can satisfy our deepest cravings and ultimately that we can save ourselves. We can do great works like Solomon to save ourselves. And it's a wrong way to think and live and believe. We need to understand that every under-the-sun pleasure is fleeting. Every under-the-sun pleasure is fleeting. It won't give us what we ultimately crave for. And, and what we need to see here is the contrast between Solomon and New Testament teaching, or the teachings of Jesus. In Ecclesiastes 2.4, the preacher says, I made great works. I made great works. Whereas, if we go to the New Testament, we could go many places, but one place, 2 Timothy 1.9, it teaches there, God saves us, not because of our works, but because of his purpose and because of his grace. The New Testament says we are not saved by works, no matter how great our works might be. We're not saved by them. We are only saved by Jesus' work. And the intention in this is to free you from thinking that there's all these things you need to do to save yourself. You don't need to go on that journey. You don't need to have all these religious hoops to jump through. Jesus did that for us. And so when we say every under the sun pleasure is fleeting, that is for your joy to set you free from trying to do something that only Jesus can do. And when we look at the work that Jesus has done, what we should conclude is that Jesus desires our pleasure. He ventured on that road. He came to us for our pleasure. In the Gospel of John, Jesus explicitly states that he came to the earth that humanity would have life. And not just a little bit of life, but life to the full. And he says explicitly in the Gospel of John as well, I came that you may have joy. And not just like a little dash of joy, but joy to the full, that your life would be overflowing with joy, that there'd be this volume, this spring that never ends of joy in your life. Joy in the hardest of circumstances. Joy that death cannot even extinguish. Peter says, 
New Testament writer, he says that the result of Jesus' salvation is inexpressible joy. That at times it is so good it's hard to put words to it. So I don't want us to think for a moment that God doesn't care about our joy. God cares about our joy. And I would even be so bold to say he cares about your joy more than you do. And the funny thing is, God is oftentimes viewed as a killjoy, right? Like he's just guy, he's a guy who's got all these rules that's keeping us from pleasure. But actually his intention is to increase our pleasure. We get in we get into trouble when we think that we know better than God what will please us. So we look at laughter, work, wine, sex. None of those things are evil in and of themselves. Those are gifts given by God for our enjoyment, for our pleasure. God intends to please you through his gifts, but if our affections are for those gifts more than they are for God himself, if, they, if the gifts distract us from the giver of pleasure, then they become destructive. Then they create displeasure in our lives. They'll only steal our joy, and God wants more for us. So lastly here, the third point of gospel application, what do we do? We look to Jesus. We look to Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's the one who's given us our faith, and he sustains and grows our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, so Jesus, as he lived his life, he knew that in front of him was the cross. And the cross was going to be horrific. But he was able to look beyond the cross and he saw further on the horizon joy. And so he set his face to the road that was laid out before him. He saw the joy that was on the horizon. He said, I will go through anything. I will endure that cross. And so what he does then for his joy and for our joy, it says in the book of Philippians, it says he made himself nothing. That's not how we think in our culture about pleasure, right? You don't make yourself nothing to get to pleasure. But that's the mathematical equation. That's the road to pleasure in Jesus' way, in Jesus' world. He made himself nothing for his joy and our joy, and that is also the pathway to our pleasure as well. What brings us pleasure is recognizing that nothing under the sun can provide us the pleasure we're yearning for. To understand that there's nothing that we're going to go consume as we walk out of here that's going to ultimately satisfy us. The intention of those things is to redirect us back up to Jesus to say, you are a good giver of gifts. Thank you for this gift. And what happens 
in that. As we look to Jesus, then, what happens is we find life and joy, as we find our identity in and through him. As we pursue pleasure, as we encounter pleasure, we actually, our pleasure is increased, and oftentimes exponentially increased as it directs us back up to the one who has given it to us. Because that's the intention, that God would give gifts to his creation for our enjoyment so that we would then go back to him and worship him and praise him. Our pursuit of pleasure outside of Jesus leads to nothing. So there's this continual call, look to Jesus. When I say look to Jesus, I'm saying entrust your life to him. Give yourself over to him. Let him be over all of your life because only Jesus can ultimately satisfy us. So we're going to take a few moments to reflect on this reality, the, the fact that Jesus made himself nothing, the fact that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. And we're going to observe the Lord's Supper or communion. And at Center Church, we place a, a major value on this idea of community, on pursuing others in the way that Jesus has pursued us. But there's also times when, if you're not a Christian, we want you to feel some tension. And so, as much as we want to welcome you and invite you, there are also times when we want you to feel separation. Not in an, an exclusive, like, we're against you, but only more so in like an inviting way. We want you to come and join us in this family meal. That, that's what this is intended to be, a family meal where we can eat together, we can remember what Jesus has done, we can celebrate the fact he did this for us. So as we do this, if you're not a Christian, if you've not entrusted your life to Jesus, if you've not made yourself nothing, and Jesus everything, then, then this isn't for you. We want to invite you to entrust your lives to Jesus, but, but this is nothing more than a meaningless ritual otherwise. And, and if you're a Christian, one of the big things that the New Testament talks about for us is that we come and do this, we confess our sins, to not confess our sins, to not check our hearts, is to eat and drink judgment upon ourselves. And so th this is a time where we come, we remember who Jesus is. We remember what he has done for us. He's gone to the cross to save us from our sin. He has made himself nothing. And so we're going to eat bread, which symbolizes his body. We're going to drink the cup, which symbolizes the shedding of his blood. And so we remember, but we also celebrate. It's almost this sober celebration, remembering that Jesus made himself nothing, dying in our place so that we might have inexpressible joy through the forgiveness of sin. So what's going to happen here is the band's going to come up uh, in just a moment. They're going to play a number of songs, and we want to invite those of you who, for you, Jesus is Lord. He's over your life. He, he's the king over your life, and he's the savior 
of your life. He's the one that has died for the forgiveness of your sins. His sacrifice is what allows you to be near to God. If that's you, we want to invite you to come and to partake in this. If, if you want to pray with me, I'm going to be off to the side. I'd love to pray with anybody, uh, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian. I would love to chat or pray with you. So I'm going to ask you guys to stand with me. Uh, I'm going to read a passage of Scripture, and then I'm going to pray for us as we go into this time. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the fact that you made yourself nothing. You had everything. You're the king who rules over all in this world, and you made yourself nothing so that we might be able to experience forgiveness of sins and in that undying, inexpressible joy. So Jesus, I pray in these moments, as we reflect on the fact that you have come to us, you have laid down your life to save us, that you would show us in new, in powerful ways, the glory of your sacrifice. That there's no expression of love anywhere else in the world that looks like this. A man laying down his life for his enemies. A God who can destroy his enemies, giving of himself so that they might be saved, so that they might be close to you. So God, help us to see the beauty of your nothingness and how that leads then to your glory and to our joy. In your great name I pray. Amen.
as we go from here today, let's stand in the power of Jesus. He doesn't offer us or promise us a life full of only balloons and candy and pleasure. That He promises that you will go through hard times. It's going to be part of the reality, but He will